Now this morning, I am reading Acts chapter 4, most of it, verse 5 through 37. The next day, the rulers and elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then knock or the know this, <clears throat> you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved." When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in, his, in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed, was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. You spoke the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate <clears throat> met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, 
The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Well, thanks, Elijah. That was a a sizable chunk. Um, And there's a lot that goes on in this passage um, as we're continuing through our series of Acts. And it's kind of building right on last week, looking at the healed man, the healed lame beggar. Well, I want to start us with a little bit of a story to help us imagine the, the feeling that Peter and John may have had, the experience that they may have been in, so that we could understand it in a new and different way. Uh, this is a slide of Rosa Parks. It's a pretty famous image uh, of Rosa Parks sitting on the Montgomery, Alabama bus line. Josh Moon, writing for the Montgomery Advertiser, writes this. He says, most any sixth grader can recite the basics of Rosa Parks' refusal to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus line to a white man. Every version goes something like this. She was tired. She refused to move to the colored section. She got arrested, started the civil rights movement, and now black people have the right to vote. That's that's the cliff notes that most any sixth grader could give you of the movement that Rosa Parks participated in and the action that she did in bold faith. Here's what we don't know about the story, though. Many of us, especially in this part of the country, not knowing more than we learn in the history books, might imagine that just one day Rosa Parks got tired and... She was tired from her job and she didn't want to move to the back of the bus, right? That's kind of the the mythological, the folklore of this story. But we don't know this, as Moon continues to write, the the boycott didn't happen by accident. Legendary civil rights attorney Fred Gray said during a recent interview, it took meticulous planning and thought. It wasn't something that came together overnight. It took discipline and smart people. So Rosa Parks boarded a particular bus, notorious for a particularly racist bus driver. In fact, blacks on that line had complained for years about mistreatment. One person had even died from the actions that had happened on the line. But Rosa Parks, though she was a seamstress, as commonly noted, was much more than a seamstress. Moon writes this, he says, at the time of her arrest in 1955, Parks was serving as the secretary of the NAACP state and Montgomery chapter chapters and had been a civil rights activist for years. 
In addition to serving as secretary on the local chapter, Parks also was a member of the Montgomery Improvement Association, a collection of some of their most influential black leaders, and she headed up their youth leadership organization, working out of Trinity Lutheran Church. In those roles, Parks had become a central figure in civil rights activities around Montgomery, and she was within the inner circle of a group that included Gray, Nixon, and other prominent black leaders in this time. Look, Rosa Parks was not just anybody. Rosa Parks had the character, had the position, and had the passion and the mission to exercise in bold, faith and begin a set of dominoes that would topple where people all around would support and come around this movement. She was catalyzing a movement and she was on the forefront and she came in and she said, today I'm going to poke the bear. Today I'm going to poke the bear. I feel so strongly about the injustice. The popular opinion is beginning to be on my side among, among the communities that I'm in. And this man, this James Blake, who was the brush driver, is just an absolute racist. He's mistreating people. He's unjust. And so she refuses to move to the back of the bus. Now, I want us to envision the story that we read here of Peter and John with this movement kind of thinking. Imagine Peter and John, they're not just anybody, right? They didn't just walk into the temple one day and heal a lame be beggar from no background, no character, no network, no anything. No, these are people, these are two disciples of Jesus who had been for years living into this moment. And they had a movement of 3,000 people, just now added to 2,000, 5,000 people that were behind them saying, look, we want shalom, we want justice. We believe that there's injustice happening in the world and we want to change it. So we're going to confront the status quo. We're going to break cultural assumptions and practices. And we are going to poke the bear. That's, that's what happens last week when we looked at this section on the lame beggar. And what you see here is what happens when the bear gets poked. They're put in prison overnight because the white collar workers, the nine to five high priesthood can't be bothered to come out in the evening. They wait till the next morning. They show up at 9 a.m. and then they hear their story. <clears throat> who, who is this high priestly family? What, what is the situation that they're coming into in the story? We've talked about this a little bit before, and it's like, it's like the mafia. The high priest family is, is Annas, who uh, is the acting high priest, and Caiaphas is Annas's dad or father-in-law. And so there's like this whole family line. It's a family, it's a bloodline that's controlling this high priesthood. 
And they're basically saying, you're messing with our setup here. You're messing with our power structure. And Peter and John are challenging them by asking a rhetorical question. If we follow you, would we be following God? Which essentially is saying, are you following God or not? We believe that we are, and we're standing up against you. We're not going to move to the back of the bus, so to speak. This Jesus is the real Christ, the real Messiah. He holds the power and you don't. And so in the act of justice, in the act of all that's right in the world, in the act of grace and goodness, we're going to unveil your hypocrisy. And so the high priesthood becomes like the bus driver in this story. Now, just, I don't know, to me, when I imagine it that way, it changes my paradigm. Suddenly what we're doing here is, is we have a group of, we have two disciples who are leading the charge of a movement of Jesus followers that are going to explode, blow up the cultural assumptions, the practices, the expectations of the Jewish tradition of the way all society functioned. And what we see is in this bold act of faith, that the spirit is with them. And in fact, we see that it inspires the whole church and they begin to pray for that same boldness in a way that according to verses 23 through 27, shake the room. The bold faith shakes the room. So this is the theme for today, boldness. This, this story happens on a sort of spiritual stage, a spiritual battleground. And in this, there's not just a war of ideologies. There's not just a war of what is the right way to think about the world. There's actually a spiritual war going on. And the weapon, the armor, the power of somebody like Rosa Parks, the weapon, the power of Peter and John, beyond even what she was doing, is a bold faith. In Christ, we see in the text three places where it talks about the boldness. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Okay, so right there, Luke's telling us this, this is a boldness that's happening. Verse 29, when they pray, it says this, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, do you think that this boldness just happened? That the Spirit ran into them and suddenly they were, where they were never bold before, they were suddenly bold? Or do you think it was brewing within them? A growing boldness. Do you think Rosa Parks just one day got super bold and said, I'm going to do something even though the last, you know, 10 years of my life, I've just been crippled, you know, by a sense of doubt and a sense of unworthiness and self-loathing. No, she was participating as an activist. She was bold in baby steps and baby steps and baby steps. And finally, she stepped out onto the world stage in a bold act of faith growing in the fullness of spirit. That's what's happening to Peter and John here. They find themselves with the fullness of spirit on the spiritual stage. 
to a watching world. Chapter 4, 27. Look at 27, says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, from whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So this is both the, the Roman rulers and the appointed Jewish governors, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So here, here the, the Christians, the early Christians are saying, when we read Psalm 2 and we read that the nations are raging and the peoples are plotting in vain, we're realizing it's not just the Romans. It's not just the Jewish elite or the high priesthood mafioso. It is even our own people that are against the Christ. And so it's going to take bold faith. The uncertainty of what could happen when you, when you stand up because you believe it is the mission of God and you, you could potentially have a war on all sides. That's what this Jerusalem temple is. It's going to be the place where people are, all eyes are going to be focused on, just like when Rosa Parks sat, wouldn't move and all eyes were focused and the media attention came on that bus line. But were they bold in an act of aggression, hatred, loudness? Were they bold in an act of self-righteousness and covering up their own hypocrisy? Or were they bold in their acts of healing and seeking justice? Peter and John ruffle feathers by healing a lame beggar, by restoring dignity, by asking him to look at them. So when we, um, we imagine what bold faith is going to look like for Christianity, we want to make sure it's in the way of Jesus, that it's healing coming from Christians in the church who see justice and act to restore dignity. Now here's one thing we can be certain of in this story. Boldness is not blending in. Boldness is not blending in. That's one thing boldness is not. But as Christians, how often do we just want to blend in, right? Some of us have so idolized the relational peace that our agreements are not peace, they're platitudes. They're, they're just trying not to ruffle feathers while in secret we, we disagree, right? We can't bear to be bold or honest and clear sometimes. It's not peace and shalom that we're creating, it's complacency and it's fear of what it will mean to us if we begin to act out of our calling or if we begin to act out of the deep-seated moral feelings we have of what's right in the world or how to raise our families or what needs to happen in our neighborhoods. If something is wrong in your life, peace is opting out of the wrong thing and actively seeking for its redemption. If something is wrong in your life, peace is opting out of the wrong thing and seeking for its redemption. That doesn't mean you're opting out of it and fighting it tooth and nail with all of your anger and hatred and rage. It means that you're opting out of it and then actively seeking for healing. What would it mean for me to no longer participate in injustice? 
in patterns of consumption that hurt people, in, in a method or a habit or a desire in my home that creates anger, or of a workplace that's pursuing something that's not helping people, it's hurting people. What would it mean to opt out of that wrong thing and actively seek its redemption? It's going to require bold faith. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we get this boldness? Okay, John, I don't want to blend in. I want to be bold, but how do I get the boldness? I'm not a bold person. You can read the story and as a descriptive story, you can say, well, good for them. I'm glad they're bold. I'm not the bold one. Like that's not me. I'm not the bold guy on the front that's gonna do the Rosa Parks thing or the Peter and John thing. I'm glad they have a spiritual battle. I have a battle with my five-year-old at night and it feels like I'm fighting the devil, so thank you very much. I don't need any more demons than that, right? Like, I don't, I don't want more trouble. My life is troubled enough. But I think deep down we realize that to be a Christian is going to require bold faith. It's going to require something in us to shift and change where we're snest, the one that never thought we were standing up and now we're standing up. We're the one that never thought that we would ruffle feathers and now we're in a position where we have to ruffle feathers. And what we see with Peter and John is this bold faith. We have to ask, okay, the story shows us that they have it. How do we get it? How do we get bold faith? We see that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 8. And then he says to them all of this stuff, and then they reply, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Okay, so we can trace the boldness back one step. I'm just kind of doing some sleuthing on the story. We, they have boldness. I can say Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So how do I get boldness? I must find how to become filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, so holy, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing? So it's a good thing to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want that. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can we say we are filled with the Holy Spirit? Do we feel like we are? Some, maybe today we don't. Maybe today we go, I don't know. Today was pretty tough. I had a fight this morning before I even got here. I don't feel like I'm full of the Holy Spirit. Have we been promised to be given the Holy Spirit? in belief in Jesus. Yes, we've been promised that. So we can expect fullness of the Spirit even when we don't deserve it. But we still need to be pursuing the Spirit. Part of belief, part of knowing that we're incapable of doing it and yet knowing it's promised for us is saying, okay, maybe I'm on the wrong wavelength. Maybe I'm on the wrong track. How do I become filled with the Holy Spirit? I want it. I don't want what happened this morning. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to love God and love my neighbor. I want to be with Jesus. So boldness emerges from and overflows from a fullness of the Holy Spirit. If I, if I were to think of what a fullness of the Holy Spirit is, I would think this. And I've used this terminology a lot lately. It's being all in. I'm all in. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean what I do is always right. But if you ask me, do you believe in this? I will say, absolutely, I believe in this. I'm all into this way of doing life. I'm the first to raise my hand and say I've messed it up, but I believe in the method. I believe in the process. 
So how do we get the fullness of the Spirit then? We have to continue to trace backward in the story. And we will begin to see how Peter and John have this fullness of Spirit. They unveil it in their conversation. They say to, they say to the rulers, they go, you're accusing us over a good deed done to a crippled man, okay? Let it be known to all of you that it's through the name of Jesus, they say, okay? Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for as there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, let's take it one step back. Fullness of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we got bold faith. We want that. Fullness of the Holy Spirit. We want that and it's promised for us. Don't feel like we have it maybe right now, but we want it and it's promised for us. Where is it coming from? It's coming from this cornerstone living. Okay, they're saying to the priests, you've rejected the cornerstone. But it is on the cornerstone that we find salvation. It's the cornerstone that we as disciples live out of. That's where we get the fuel. That's where we get our passion. That's where we get our, that's where we get our belief that this is right and good and just what we're doing. If you don't know what a cornerstone is, this image shows you pretty well. Okay? What they're saying is Jesus is that block in the corner. And what a cornerstone is in architecture is it's the stone that is laid that everything is based off of, right? You go this way and you go that way from this point in the ground. You've got to lay that stone first and then you can go out from there. So what they're saying is we live by the cornerstone. Jesus is the point of reference from which we build our whole life. So that means for Peter and John, they have built their whole life on a total reality of Jesus. Jesus is absolutely 100% real to them. And he's so reliable, and they believe in him so fully, not just as a man, but as God, that they have restructured over a period of three years their entire life. Everything. It's all changed because before Jesus was the cornerstone, some of these guys were 25, some of them were 18, some of them might have been 40. They had spent years of their life building it around a different stone. So they have a whole nother structure over there somewhere that's built that they've either abandoned, torn down, repurposed the stones, and they've built them on the cornerstone. So you see how that's going to make their life they, if they must believe that this is worthwhile because they had to abandon another project. Everybody has to abandon another project when we become a Christian. When we go all in, even if we were raised Christians, but we weren't all in, we will have built all these abandoned projects. And we will have to let them go and begin to live on a, a sense of cornerstone living. This healed man that we see in the text is also living proof of this cornerstone living. He's living proof of a living hope. He's irrefutable. Like even the priests are like, we can't deny that this guy was healed. I don't know about you, but I envy the sense of reality 
that Peter and John had. The sense of reality, even that that accusing high priest would have had to see this miraculous healing. Because when you can see it in front of you, it feels so real. It, it's, it's, it's much, it seems to me that it would be much easier to follow that. I even think of, of Rosa Parks sitting here and I go, it, it, of course it would be so real for you to know that this is unjust because it's happening to you. Like you stand on a belief that's so completely real to you and sure, do we stand on that same belief in Jesus that's so utterly, completely real to us? Or like the high priest, have we begun to doubt and say, well, maybe Jesus is a false teacher. Ha, ha, you know, they're, they're, stumped not because, they're stumped because they look at this healing and they, they, they believe in spiritual forces. It's a very different problem than we have, right? In our culture, our problem is we say there isn't such thing as demon possession. There isn't such thing as miracles. There isn't such thing as God. We're in a scientific culture and there, there is none of that. Effectively, if you jump into the realm of science, what you will find is that it's like de facto atheist, right? Because it's like, okay, we're, or at least agnostic. We can't say that there's a God. We can't show it on paper. So our whole culture then, which is a very techno-science-centered culture, is built on this idea that there's really no God. And it's been that way for 200 plus years. But the high priests don't have that problem. They actually believe, they see the miracle, they know it's real, they know it was healed. They ask by what power, right? In what name? Is this some Greek, Roman God? Is this demons? Is this some other thing? Or is this from God Almighty? And if it's from God Almighty, is it really from Jesus or is it from Yahweh? Is Jesus Yahweh? Because that was the real problem. But regardless, the devil's done his work. Regardless if the, the thing that keeps us from building on the cornerstone is doubt in the existence of a God or doubt the existence that Jesus is that God. The devil's done his work because he said, he's got us to believe that I should not put all of my eggs in that basket, that I should not go all in. And that's why this cornerstone thinking is so audacious and bold. I mean, we all, I bet, know people who say, I believe there's a God of the universe. Because a lot of times when people go, there is no God, I go, how did it all start? Like, come on, really the Big Bang, really? Like, and so a lot of people I talk to will go, okay, well, yeah, there's probably some force. There's probably some God out there that's behind it all. And then the question then, the real leap is to go from faith that there could be some kind of force to Jesus is God. That's still a major leap to go through. I would contend that many of us in this room, when we begin to doubt, something is tied to that leap because culture so influences our sense of what we think is right and true and, and real that the doubt begins to creep into us. Is Jesus really God? Can I make him the cornerstone of my life? But Peter and John have experienced faith. They've both experienced it. It's happened to them, but they have experience with it. They have three years doing life 
with Jesus. And he's done things that are totally inexplicable. And if he indeed was a false teacher, and if he indeed was not Yahweh God, then why would everything that he does line up with the character of Yahweh? And they've doubted this and they've asked, are you a prophet? Are you just summoning? Are you just channeling God? But then he's resurrected before them and he proclaims from his own mouth. So the question then is, is he a liar or not? And they go, nothing about this guy seems like a liar. They've experienced the faith in Jesus and it has grown them step by step in the sense of total reality into a bold faith. So how can, how can we do that? How can we begin to practice that way of living that makes Jesus a total reality and then grow in that boldness? I'm gonna borrow here from a local author and pastor, uh, former pastor, he's an author now, John Mark Comer at Bridgetown. He just, he just sums it up well, what this word discipleship means. Okay, we've all heard this discipleship to Jesus term. You could also call it cornerstone living. I mean, that's what they're doing. But he just calls it practicing the way. And he says there's three pieces to it. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. Simple. Being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. I might even say doing what Jesus does, since he's still an active presence. This is the life process for us if we want to grow in boldness of faith. So in this room, if we say, hey, I like this boldness of faith thing. I want to be that person. Hey, I feel like the Holy Spirit is not filling me up. I want to get to that fullness. Hey, I understand the cornerstone piece. I want that. How do I get there? I'm just racked with doubt. I'm dealing with my own stuff. I can't make it. Like that first song we sang, my head's full of rocks, my heart's full of stone. Like, I, I am not the person that you all think I am, right? How do I get there? Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. So in order to kind of imagine that in this story and uncover it, because it's a descriptive story, it's not prescriptive, it's not telling that to us in the story. We have to sort of take it like an old VHS tape thinking of you, Wendy, an old VHS tape, and run it in reverse. Run, the, run this in reverse, and when you rewind it without stopping, you know how you see everything go backward? You know, our kids are never going to experience that, by the way. That's just insane to me. I mean, what, a, what, a, what a loss. Uh, let's imagine this story running in reverse for a second. Okay, let's hit rewind. Okay, so they're in prison. They're just out in front of Annas and Caiaphas telling the story. Now, we hit rewind. They're back in prison overnight. They've healed the lame man. They preached a sermon. Peter's preached a sermon on Pentecost. All these people are going, you know, from, from, at, from in the church back into the crowds. And all of this is happening in reverse. Then we're getting to Pentecost. The fiery tongues are lifting back up into the air. And then we're in Jesus' ascension. He's coming down from the cloud back in. And we go to the disciples' 40-day period where they're with Jesus occasionally, but not the whole time. And then we go to three years of Jesus with the miracles and all of that stuff. Playing it in reverse. What do we get back to? We get back to number one, being with Jesus. The disciples have been with Jesus. The text tells us this in verse 13. 
in the second half, it says, now when they saw, this is the high priest, these are the bad guys. The bad guys are seeing it. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Why would, why would Luke bring that up? They recognized that they had been with Jesus because they were so sure. Because they were absolutely, completely sure about it. The opinion of the high priest was nothing to the opinion of Jesus over them. What Jesus thought of them mattered way more than what the high priest thought of them. Because they had been with Jesus. He was their mentor. He was their authority. He taught them how to live. He taught them what the good life was. And when they saw that the priests were teaching a different story, they said, we're sticking with Jesus. Now let's look at, in this story, how the people of Jesus, these are people that haven't been disciples, so we can relate a little more to these people. They haven't spent three physical, real, grounded years with another human being where they can look in his face and touch him. He's standing right there in front of them. They don't have that. This is new converts joining the church. Let's see what they do. Verse 23, when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they, this is the, the, the church of thousands probably, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then they quote Psalm 2. Okay? How are they spending their time with Jesus? How is the new converts who hear of this bold faith and are not petrified by it? I mean, wouldn't you imagine that 2,000 new, like fresh converts, like these have just joined the ranks. They've just been at the temple for the Jewish festivals. They've said, recalibrate, Jesus is the cornerstone. And they're starting to read the scriptures through the door of Jesus. And now dad's mad at them right? And wants to throw them all in prison, cranking up the pressure. And what are they doing? They're sticking with Jesus. They're spending time with him. The, the scriptures have helped them see the reality of Jesus. So these people are like us. They've never experienced Jesus in the flesh. Now, granted, they have Peter and John who are eyewitnesses talking to them. That's helpful. But they're not saying that that's the reason they stuck to their guns. What they're saying is that they saw how what was happening was in line with the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They knew how to recall them, interpret them, and place it amidst their reality so that they could see reality clearly from the lens of scripture. And that's pretty hard to do. Even if you know scripture, it can be pretty hard to be like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, I want that so bad right now. Oh, maybe if I just take it and nobody will notice, you know, just that one, that one dinner that I can't have for my diet or that one, you know, like that one time for myself when I need to be cleaning or whatever the thing is where we go, I just want to take and eat. 
but I know the scripture. And if the scripture was real to me, the way of Jesus would speak to me. And that would be my cornerstone, my authority. So I wouldn't begin building a house off of something else because I know if I do, I'm just going to have to tear it down again. Is Jesus that real? So as a church, they remember from the scriptures, and that is a way that they are being with Jesus. I like to think of it this way, that we, we remember ourselves forward with the Bible. We remember ourselves into the future. And as a church, then we can see what happens after they do that is they pray. They pray in boldness. Said verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They're so sure of it. In fact, they even interpret the scriptures and in 28 they say, okay, we're going to say who are, who are the nations that rage and the peoples that plot in vain? We're going to be specific. We're going to point as a community and we're going to gather around and charge each other up and grow that boldness with each other by actually applying the scriptures together like we've done in our cohorts. And we've said, when you read this, how do you interpret this for our city, for your neighborhood, for your life? And they say, OK, the nations, that's Herod, that's Pontius Pilate, that's the Gentiles, and it's even the people of Israel. OK. That puts a face to a name, so to speak. That makes something real, right? But then in their bold cornerstone living, in their bold faith, they trust that Jesus will do whatever is in his hand and in his plan, whatever is he's predestined to take place. And then they pray this, look upon the threats around us. Look upon the threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your Holy Spirit, Jesus. This is powerful. So that's the way that they spend time with Jesus. They dive into scripture. They spend time with each other. They apply it to now and find encouragement. They're also becoming like Jesus because they're practicing and living out this faith in real, tangible ways. They're using their time. So to be with Jesus is one thing that does take time and you have to experience and he has to be real for you. But then you begin to catch on and you begin to act like Jesus. And this is what I try and do whenever I see somebody here acting like Jesus, I try and point that out. And I said, that was awesome. That was major growth. That, that was so good. I can see that you're acting like Jesus. I mean, it's kind of like piano practice. And I think sometimes mentally it's like piano practice for us too. My kids are, are doing piano and man, it can be so discouraging sometimes to play the piece, play the piece, play the piece, same mistakes, can't get it, can't remember the notes, can't get this down. Like I go and I go to my lesson and I feel like I forgot everything I learned that week. Or I go from the lesson and I go, no, I just knew how to do it, dad, and I can't show you, I can't remember what my teacher told me. 
Go back to practice. Go back to practice. Sometimes they just cave in and they say, I'll never be able to play like mom does, or I'll never be able to play like my teacher does. But that's what I want. I want to be able to play like my teacher, but I just can't. And they're sometimes on the brink of tears because they just feel like they can't master it and they can never do it. But then if I took that and I took a snapshot, go back to our VHS and I rewind and I were to show them the tape and I were to say, let's look at the beginning of the tape and see what you were like and now play. They would see tremendous growth. It's the same thing for us in the church. If we look and I could show you a snapshot of your life five years ago, 10 years ago, a year ago. Church, we are becoming like Jesus. I know it. And it's from being like Jesus that we've been coming like, becoming like Jesus because we're practicing and living that faith. And then doing what Jesus did. Okay? Becoming like Jesus is both in the heart and in the action. The actions always come out of the heart. And we notice that the things that we do with that heart are Jesus-y things. That, that's how I can tell. That's how any of us can tell. The Holy Spirit healed a lame beggar through Peter and John. It's a page straight out of the Jesus playbook. It literally happens in John 6, I think. Like, it's just basically the same exact story. In the temple, like, here's a lame guy, we heal him. It, it's, it's literally exactly what Jesus would do. Because Jesus had literally exactly already done that exact thing. So they were doing literally what Jesus had done. But let's think about what the things happened, because you and I are probably not going to reach out to Ron and restore your sight today, even though we would love that, right? Like, we're not going to do that. We don't necessarily expect that, though we can always pray for that, to heal infirmities and heal things. But let's look at what the healing actually did. When, when Peter and John reach out to the lame man, they say, look at me. The first thing they do is they give him dignity. He would have been like this, knowing that he's kind of unclean, unable, untouchable in a way. And they say, look at me. So the first thing that they did when they were acting straight out of the Jesus playbook is they gave everybody dignity. There was physical healing. There was restorative justice. Suddenly a lame beggar could work. Suddenly he could do things for himself. Suddenly he could participate in society and have value and worth. And of course there's soul care, there's spiritual care happening. This, by all measures, the layman has joined the church. He's in prison, it appears. And he's held before the trial. He's like thrown in with them. And he's clinging to them, remember? He, he is a new church member. He's going to be cared for by the community. So they're doing what Jesus was, did, and Jesus was bold. So when we're spending time with Jesus, becoming like him and doing the things he demonstrated, we will find that we begin to possess bold faith. That's what we'll find. Because we will speak also out of what we do. 
because it's the, the point is not blending in. Jesus did not blend in. When Jesus did Jesus-y things, he stuck out. And he had to speak out of integrity of what he did, which is a common, sensible, factual defense. And that made so many people angry. Look at what Peter and John did. It's a common, sensible, practical defense. This is what we did. This is who's actually in charge. And this is what's going to actually happen. And it made everybody else so angry that didn't have their life built off the cornerstone. But is that Peter and John's problem? No. I'm preaching to myself here a little bit. Like sometimes I'm like, if I suggest you need to change, like you're going to be mad at me. So that's bad. So I shouldn't do that. And all it takes is that much of the devil's voice for me to blend it, to step out of boldness. Now, you can be so inclined to be bold that you can be self-righteous and graceless, right? We all know that we've done that. All of us have done that. I'm not suggesting that. But I think oftentimes our tendency is to blend in. There's an adage in writing, you write what you know. Right? I read a, an obituary for Gary Paulson in the New York Times. I don't know if any of you guys know that name. He, he's a great writer from my youth. He wrote young adult survival stories. It's most famous for the one called Hatchet. And it's about um, a young boy who crash lands in the Canadian wilderness and has to survive. Um, and I always thought like, this is just such great writing. Like, who, you know, how does he just kind of nail this? Um, well, he told his story in the obituary, the, the story of his life is told he had an abusive dad, just like the character in this story, a dad who is kind of absent, not there. He had a mom who was disengaged, always searching for men, just like the character in this story. And he begins to tell the story of his life and you begin to realize how he would write this book that emotionally he had to leave and get out into nature. He joins the circus, the author, he joins the army. And eventually, after writing scripts for the old Mission Impossible TV show in L.A., he just says, I'm done with it all. And he moves to the woods in northern Minnesota to write and hunt and subsist off the land. And that's where he writes a book like Hatchet. He, he wrote what was deep inside of him. He lived it out and then he began to speak it. This is not a pretend thing. This is not a hat you put on. Christianity isn't that. It just came from deep within his heart. So there is a war, though, that's raging on our boldness. So I can critique my own desire to blend in. I could critique your desire to blend in. But the reality is that bold faith is a target. Bold faith is both a target and it's also slippery. What do I mean by that? Bold faith is a target. The devil has his sights on bold faith. He wants to take it down because it's dangerous for his plan, for his covert operation. But it's also slippery because when you maintain bold faith, he can't get his hands on you. He can't touch you. Now, here in this story, they're let out of prison. They're free. They can't, they can't be, they can't be um, accused and held accountable for anything in this story. So they have to let them go. They don't have enough evidence, so to speak. And that's in part because of their slippery, bold faith. 
But think even of later on, we're going to hear the story of Stephen. They do stone Stephen, but he's still slippery because he maintains his bold faith even through stoning. So the boldness is both the greatest offense and the greatest defense. But it requires consistent boldness. Consistent boldness of faith. And that's where we need God's grace. Because where the devil gets us is in our inconsistency. A lot of us do have bold faith, but it's inconsistent faith. And it's the result of double-mindedness. And that inconsistent bold faith is not slippery, it's fragile. Because all the devil does is he just sits like a crouching tiger and he waits. Right? He's patient. And he will wait for us. For that moment when we're asked to take a risk and he will suggest you could lose an awful lot on this. You could lose a lot of time, relationships, money, reputation. Your kids won't turn out as good as your friend's kids or your brother's kids or whatever. Like you could lose a lot on this gamble. And he gets under our skin. He just waits for that opportune moment. But the reason he even has opportunities to take shots at us is the inconsistent faith. And we think that we need to be bulletproof in our faith, that we need to have a boldness of faith that never wavers, that Peter and John never wavered, that they never made mistakes. But read the story. We know that's not true. We know that they made mistakes, huge mistakes. But the devil wants to rewrite the story. He distorts how we see it. And he wants us to think that we have to be perfect. And he says, okay, you have this inconsistent faith. See, you're bad. You'll never get better. And he just wants to rush in there. So we don't have time to go through it. But in this story and next week, I'll talk more about this double mindedness that we can't serve two masters. This idea that where your treasure is, your heart is also. These are all cornerstone ideas. And the only thing I'll say right now is that the devil is going to ratchet up the pressure on your life wherever he can. What, what, do, what do the rulers here do? What do the priests do? They say, fine, then we're going to make a rule. They, they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They're amping up the pressure to see if Peter and John will cave. But what happens? Peter and John say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather... Then to God, whether it isn't right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. So they stick to their guns. So the pressure's ratcheted up, but they stick to their guns. And the devil is going to ratchet, ratchet that pressure up for us. And he's going to do it through the world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll get into that when we talk about Ananias and Sapphira next week. We just got to remember that all of these are ways how the devil loses even though he's trying to win. All of these are the ways that the devil loses 
even though he's trying to win. He can't win these fights if we continue to build our life on the cornerstone. Imagine if this whole story here is happening in your body. Imagine if the spirit in you, the Peter and John in you, are going to trial and the devil, the bad guys, the high priesthood are accusing. And you've, welcome to my day. Welcome to what's happening inside my head. Right? Like the, these are the battles that we're in. These back and forth voices going on in our head. So when I say bold, boldness, I do not mean the world's method of boldness. Okay, this is the world's method of boldness. Right, Arthur? To boldly go where no man has gone before. This is, this is what we think of when we think of boldness. It's a cowboy-style frontier, power of the human ego, bravery, and we admire that confidence, and we look for that in a leader, and we want that to be the image of man, some of us. We want that kind of power and leadership in people. Don't we want that? That's what the world's vision of boldness. In fact, it's so much the world's vision of boldness that as the time said, the most thoroughly modern blurring of reality and fiction, we got this this week. That Jeff Bezos in his Blue Origin space, civilian spacecraft took William Shatner, Captain Kirk, to space, really, to boldly go as if it was maybe a shaman or a blessing or a, a, a token to, to say that Bezos himself is boldly going where no man has gone before. To, to do what, Bezos? To help who? He said, all of your purchases from Amazon have, have helped us do this. That. To help who? Like this is the bold image that we have of bold faith in our world, both bold faith in himself. Our leaders have bold faith in their own ego and their own desires and their own pursuits. But where's that rocket blasting out to with a, a celebrity, like a marketing ploy on board? Nowhere, just outer space. Just in the, the what? That's not a cornerstone I want to build my life on. That, that image of the good life. Like, let's get out of here to where we have no idea. Just not here. Because this isn't going to work out anymore. There must be something else. Isn't that just the kind of prevailing thought pattern of anybody who denies Christ? Is like, to where? I don't know, whatever works for me, like whatever makes me happy, whatever, you know, progress, let's just, we'll find it. Let's just strike out and we'll find it. Because I don't want the cornerstone. That's not what I want. The Christian faith gives us a Jesus who is God and became man who really died for us. He's not an ideology. He's not just a loving human. He's not an archetype. He's not a mythology that helps us tell ourselves stories, that helps us go to bed at night. 
Because then Jesus could just be a fiction. He's a real healer. There's a total reality from a creator God, a powerful God who can move seas that loves us and sent his son to die for us. And when we believe in that, the kind of faith and assurance that we have, that cornerstone anchor that we have, will shake a room and bring fire from heaven. Because he is somebody who, when we invest in him and his way and his leadership, he initiates us not into outer space with an aging celebrity, but he initiates us into the good life of eternal salvation. That's a leader I want to follow. That's a person I want to give my money to and my time to. But the hard part is that he asks us to pick up our cross, die to our improperly built life, so that he can initiate us. What do I mean by initiate? Maybe some of us haven't heard that term. That he can be with us to bring us into something new. That he can teach us into a new way of living. Imagine Jesus as an initiator, as somebody who is there always walking before us to bring us into the greatest thing for us. And he does that by literally dying for us to earn our trust, right? To restore us, to show us the way. And what we have in this story, and I'll wrap up, is a beloved community, a church, a movement of people. This is a movement, just like Rosa Parks was part of a movement that galvanized, that, that, that collected around the idea, right? Much more so, we have a community of the church that gathers around an actual person who proved it, who did it, who was known in such a real way that we can believe in everything he does. And then what we see is that there's this all-in community. This is the, just the last portion of it after they pray these powerful prayers. Verse 42, or verse, um, here in the end, verse 32 through 37. We just get an image, and it says in a summary here, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. We have this connected church aware of needs and serving needs. We have a church that creates this peace and fairness and goodness according to God's rule, what we call shalom, wherever it's given power to do so. They're unified in values and beliefs. And they're praying for boldness. So church, let's pray for boldness. Let's, let's fuel up here so we can head out and come back and head out and come back and head out. Let's be praying for that kind of boldness that would help us be initiators. Riley at Cohort talked about this and it was kind of a light bulb for me. He said there's extroverts and there's introverts, but there's also initiators and people that aren't initiating, right? So you can be really extroverted and still stand and wait for your kids after school or sit at your workplace at, at a computer or probably online remotely now and just not start conversations because nobody's starting conversations with you. 
but I think we can practice initiating, knowing that Jesus initiated for us. I think we can practice that kind of initiating conversation that we can pray for boldness. And I think what you might find might surprise you. This week, I, I heard a number of people, and who knows what it is, but a number of people that were saying, God bless you to other people at my school after church. There's like underground Christians out here in Portland. They're there. They're out there. They don't even know you're one, though, because you're not initiating or being bold with your faith. You're not outing yourself. You're not extending the banner of who you are and connecting. You know, as a church, I think we're going to need to connect beyond our church to meet other people of faith and call people that are unchurched. So that's my prayer for us this week and my application. Let's pray. God, I just pray for bold faith for us um, in this room. I pray that we would, um, that you would continue to make the stories of the Bible come alive for us, relevant to us, that they would speak to us personally. God, would Jesus be a real guide, a real savior, somebody we can trust? And may you instruct us on things that we've built our life on that are making us double-minded. Could we let those go today? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.